You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Uh, and on today's show, I'm going to discuss Hearts of Iron 4 with my colleague, John Harney. And John is recently tenured. Uh, congratulations, John. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much. It's so a how very does it, strange feeling. How's it feel? <laughs> yeah. I mean... This is the the culmination of decades of work, basically. Yeah, I joked with my students that um, now I can put my feet up and just vote for completely impractical political candidates for the rest of my life, you know, and kind of <laughs> base my entire identity on, um, you know, on, on niche causes and, uh, and and be guaranteed job for life and all that stuff. And tenure kind of isn't any of those things. But, uh, you know, so for people at home, I think everyone has a rough idea what tenure is, right? So basically... I've been doing very well here at Centre College and I like it very much. Um, but at some point, for us, it's after six years, you go up to a committee and they make a decision if, if they're going to grant you tenure or not. And it's a very interesting thing that academics have done to themselves because if if the decision is that we just don't think tenure is the way to go, you get one more year to work and kind of look for a job somewhere else and then you leave. <laughs> and yeah. that's kind of, you know, it's over. Like our relationship is now ending in 16 months, like, you know, or 14 months, depending when you get the decision. But if you do get tenure, it's like, you know, if you continue to do your job the way you're expected to and everything else, that's it. We're married now. You know, you're a part yeah. of this institution. There are committees that you can be on. You cannot be on when you're not tenured. Yeah. Some for very practical reasons, like deciding who gets tenure and some for more kind of ideological reasons. So and I've had a good time here. It's been a great institution. It's been very supportive. The history and video games class has been really supported. You know, the podcast assignments and everything. Um, and I always felt really good, but in the week leading up to the decision, I started getting nervous mm -hmm. because it's kind of hard not to. Um, and it's really hard to explain. Cause you're being, you're being actively judged, right? Yes. I, mean, I don't know if people understand this, but <laughs> you, you send in the previous semester, you send in a huge exactly. portfolio of all of the work that you have done as a career scholar since you've gotten your PhD and even a little bit before you've gotten your PhD. Right. And then a committee gets together and holds several meetings in which they judge you and your work. So mm -hmm. it is, it can be nerve wracking. Yeah. And if you don't get it and people don't get it, um, you know, it's like, we just want to formally let you know that we have looked upon you and judged you insufficient. You know, yeah. it's it's a very, it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Um, and so to be judged up to it was a great feeling. And I was kind of surprised at how good it felt. And the, the, the interesting thing about it was I hadn't thought of myself as being on probation for six years. And, mm -hmm. and, and it hasn't been like that, really. At the same time, the dean came he, here at center. The dean comes to your office to kind of shake your hand and give you the good news in person. And when he said it to me, I just kind of sat there and realized once he left my office, it's like, that's it. I, it really was the proverbial weight being lifted off my shoulders kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it was it was it was amazing. Um, and you start to think about all the crazy stuff you can do now <laughs> in terms of no, you start to think of 
the 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 security you have but um it's an interesting thing you know we where it's a rarefied space yeah um i have a i have a friend who recently he he's he's in between jobs right now recently he's recently been made to be in between jobs and i just thought it's it's most people know what that is like um and i know what it's like but if all goes well with the institution if the institution remains solvent and i do my job well i'm not going to know what that's like ever again yeah that's a very strange um feeling and yeah. i think uh, i guess the one thing i'd say as well people are listening going sounds pretty good it's like yeah it is good and i'm i'm very very lucky um, but it actually brings a whole set of obligations as well. <laughs> um, it's lots not of all committee work. Yes, that's a committee work and lots of kind of, especially to a small place like this. It's weird. Like, oh, how do I explain? Like, you know, being one of the voices, being one of the voices of the conscience of this institution is in my future, you know? Yeah. Like we responsibility, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like memory, you know, what happened five years ago? Well, I was here. And this not just was. not just responsibility for yourself and your work, but responsibility right. for the institution. Right. It's it's yeah. almost like being I mean, what I would compare it to, especially the finality of not getting tenure, it's almost like being a made man in the mafia. Right. <laughs> yes, so exactly. like if you made right, you've got a position for the rest of your life. Nobody can come after you, but you've got all responsibilities. You've got to make the tough decisions. You've got to right. do the dirty work. Right. right. Uh, and then if you don't get it, you basically get, you know, uh, murdered. Uh, in the career <laughs> sense. Well, yeah, you have to change career, basically. Yeah. You know? um, so, you know, some people confound uh, really cool, awesome uh, platforms that examine historical concepts of video games, you know, and other people become consultants. You know, there's lots of different things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Although, I'll, although I, I just, I just realized what I just implied. Some people, you, you know, people choose to do these things. It should be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean we tend to <laughs> insult whole swathes of our uh, viewership and our audience, know. you know, with every sentence. So. It's it's just what happens on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, especially when I'm on. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's turn to the subject uh, for today, which is Hearts of Iron 4, uh, mm -hmm. developed by Paradox. And, you know, we've covered a lot of different Paradox games uh, throughout the course of our time on History Respawned. Uh, you know, I can remember us doing stuff on Crusader Thing Kings 2. Uh, mm -hmm. We've discussed uh, Europa Universalis several times on this show. Um, but this is the first time that you and I have really sat down and talked about a Paradox game. And it's a little bit weird because, you know, when people think of history games now, I think Paradox is one of those titles or one of those publishers uh, that comes up, you know, again and again in the same way that you think about uh, Civilization or you think about mm -hmm. Assassin's Creed. So it's a little bit weird that we haven't talked about it uh, specifically or talked about Hearts of Iron uh, in particular, um, but I think this was a good opportunity uh, to do so because, uh, John, you got a copy of not only Hearts of Iron, but then also the uh, DLC Waking the Tiger, uh, which right. focused on the war in Asia during the Second World War, Japan and China, mm -hmm. as well as the internal conflict within China between uh, the Republican Nationalists and the Communist forces led by Mao. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I got a copy, a review copy of the Man the Guns DLC, uh, which is the most recent one that came out a couple of months ago, really focused on naval combat, but then also has a couple of interesting uh, alternative history scenarios that have been added into uh, the kind of national focus uh, for a couple of the countries uh depicted in Hearts of Iron 4. Um, so I thought I would turn to you, John, first to kind of talk about Hearts of Iron in general and then also talk about your experience with 
waking the tiger in specifics. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I, I, I'm very, I've really enjoyed Hearts of Iron 4. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing because the Paradox games, they all kind of look similar because they're basically all interactive maps, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I had seen Hearts of Iron 4 described as kind of like a really advanced and extensive scenario. Mm -hmm. which it actually kind of is. So so unlike Europa Universalis, where it's like pick any country you want and run it for X amount of years, anything can happen. Hearts of Iron 4 is kind of a, it is a kind of a, you know, World War II plus, or like, you know, years immediately preceding World War II plus World War II plus fallout of World War II simulator. Yeah, um, and so it, kind it's, of, it's, yeah. Kind of, it's kind of history on rails. Yes, too. very much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it has nice things like you can you can choose when you're setting up your game, do you want countries to more or less kind of try and act the way they did historically or do you want the yes. AI to be allowed to just yes. do, do whatever, yeah. um, <clears throat> which is nice. And I think I agree on the Paradox's profile thing. I think what's interesting with Paradox is a game like Crusader Kings 2, which is ludicrously complex, but the genius of it is that someone like me who actually never had the time to learn how to play it in a complex way could play it enough to have fun with it. Mm -hmm. and and they've kind of figured out how to do that so that now they can sell a lot more copies of their games um, has really kind of changed the standing of those games. So, for example, in Hearts of Iron 4, I was having real trouble with it when I started, and, and the way the game works effectively is you can build factories in your territories, mm -hmm. and you can build a civilian factory or a military factory. And the military factories, the number of military factories that you have effectively affects, it, it does determine how many ships, how many artillery, how many guns, et cetera, et cetera, you can produce at a given time. Um, the civilian factories build everything else, including military factories, and then you can switch them over and everything else. Yeah. And someone online described this as, well, that's the economy of the game. If you start thinking of the factories basically as like your money or your currency, that's how it actually works. Yes, like, yeah. Okay, and, and, <laughs> and that's what the games are like. Um, my first experience of um, Hearts of Iron 4, I picked Britain. And I did what the British theoretically should have done in real life, although that's we can get into that whole loaded comment, which is I acted like a war was actually coming. Um, and uh, I thought uh, you were going to make some reference to Ireland here, but keep no, going. I wasn't. No, no. <laughs> that's the beauty of the paradox game. I could, in theory, uh, you know, turn the Irish communist. I know we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, but yes. they make it very hard to do. Um, so um, I basically took the Nazi threat very seriously early on. And basically, I ended up winning with a ludicrously powerful navy that controlled the seas, um, which is just kind of partly what happened to a certain extent, I suppose. But hilariously, um, <laughs> I made landfall into France uh, before the invasion I knew was coming. Because I, I, I had the I had the the AI was acting historically. Mm -hmm. So he invaded Czechoslovakia and I he made a beeline over for the French-German border and rather hilariously massed all of my troops along the Franco-German border. And then the Nazis came in through the Benelux countries and got me oh, from them. Oh. And I just sat there looking at it. And of course, the way these games work, this took hours to play out, you know. Yeah. And I just, I just sat there looking at it going, this is so embarrassing. How could I have been so stupid as to make exactly the same mistake French made? Um, and then it became one big horrible quagmire um, and but I successfully blocked the Germans off from getting out of the uh, getting out of the Baltic Sea and um, wow and I beat them that way wow um, and it was really enjoyable it was a really really enjoyable game and so for me when I think of Hearts of Iron and this is something other Paradox games do too and I know some listeners might be sick of hearing me use this word in particular but authenticity keeps coming to my mind because mm -hmm. the Paradox games are theoretically authentic 
And the fun comes either from leaning into the authenticity or deliberately diverging from it. Yes. Just making Ireland communist or whatever. But of course, it's not that simple at all, is it? So um, how about you? Like what, what, what have your experiences been playing Hearts of Iron? You know, I would say that Hearts of Iron, if I were to, to judge it against Paradox's other games, I probably like this series less than either Crusader Kings or Victoria or uh, any of the other uh, series that they have, uh, primarily because I think it does lean in really hard into the history, which as a historian, I think is in many cases really great, right? Because you have the player kind of grappling with these authentic situations, as you put it. Uh, but at the same time, as a player, right? If I'm trying to divorce myself uh, from my historical identity and just think about myself as somebody who plays games, I find that really restricting. Um, and I do mm. really appreciate the moments in say Crusader Kings or uh, Europa Universalis where I can just take the ball and run with it and kind of to hell with history. Essentially. Right. Um, so I would say that Hearts of Iron, you know, in in the you know the realm of authenticity, you're absolutely right. I think it does cleave very closely to that, uh, to its credit in many cases. But at the same time, I I like the kind of willy nilly uh, freedom <laughs> offered up by other paradox titles. Well, you would know more about this than me, Bob. And I know that one of the one of the DLCs, one of the earlier ones, attacks this completely. But one of the interesting things in the game is how Britain gets on with what at, at that time has just kind of basically become the Commonwealth, more or less. Yes. And in, in, in India, like, and, and this happens, we'll talk about Waking the, the Tiger in a few moments. The Dominions, yes. thank you. Because we'll yes. talk about this in a few moments, because in Waking the Tiger, for example, once you start to put any kind of serious analysis into how they've decided to divide up various Chinese warlords, it doesn't actually make all that much sense, really. Although it <laughs> kind of does. And that was my impression, the British-Indian relationship, but I wasn't sure. now. But I don't have the DLC that lets you break off those dominions and do much crazier stuff did you have you done much interacting between britain and its empire in the game or anything like that you know i've I kind of avoided uh playing as britain because i played so much as britain in uh, hearts of iron 3 and so it's kind of like looking for a new uh, you know uh, nation to play through to kind of mess around with with hearts of iron 4 uh, but I would say that at least in the uh, DLC that I played, uh, Man the Guns has got an option where you can actually devolve not just the empire, but you can actually devolve uh, sovereignty in Britain itself. So oh, know, wow. Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland can all become uh, independent if you want. Um, and those kind of ideas are immensely complicated and they're very difficult to accept if I'm putting on my historian's hat, they're very right. difficult to accept as just kind of a, a, a national uh, uh, national focus, right? As a simple, right. oh, I'm going to click this button and in 10 turns, we are going to have devolved sovereignty uh, in Britain, right? That's, I mean, that is extremely complicated. And I think the same thing goes for um, getting rid of the British Empire uh, going into um, the 1940s because that's a decision that takes many, many decades to come to and you right. can do it in the game within the course of s four years, right. maybe, you know, depending on when you start, if you start in 36 or if you just start in 39, um, you know, there's kind of varying uh, right. elements that play into that time period. But at the same time, it's something that can happen within less than a decade. Uh, so almost, I would almost say that playing as Britain as this country that I've studied for most of my adult life as a historian, mm -hmm. it is more difficult for me because 
I know so much about the history and so it, it becomes more difficult to right. accept alternative situations. I'm sure it's the same way for you with China and Japan. Right. When my, uh, when my daughter was born two years ago, um, you know, I remember when my son was born, I watched a lot of Star Trek at four in the morning on Netflix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when my daughter was born, I was watching the classic World War II documentary series, World at War. Okay. Uh, narrated by Laurence Olivier, mm-hmm. which if you are a history nerd, which chances are listening to this, you might be, uh, is well worth your time if you can get access to some of those. And they're all, they're like hour long, 70 minute long episodes. And the Japan episode was, I found unwatchable. Yeah. Right, it's like oh, oh, come on, ah, oh, come on, and this is from the late 60s, early <laughs> 70s. Um, so, in fairness, you know, historiography's moved on since then. But I had just, I had, la- I had drank up the 1930s Weimar Germany episode. Oh, I mean, I was know. Like, oh yeah, this, 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 this is, is this is the real stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I even find it now when I, you know, a lot of our, our job is reading, right? And when I read China, most of the time, you know, it's for work and it feels like work. Yeah. But if I, for my world history class, I was just saying to this to a colleague of mine before I recorded, prepping for the world history class is so much fun now. It's like, because I'm reading about the Ottomans going, this is great. This yeah. is great. All you need yeah. is enough to do an hour. And this is, I'm enjoying it. And I'm, I don't need to get super stressed out about, you know, the six different viewpoints between 1982 and 2005, as long as I don't do something egregious, you know, as long as I identify a couple of the discussions. Um, and it's funny that in a game, a similar thing, a similar thing would happen. I, I think it's worth clarifying as well for people listening, whether you're familiar with Paradox games or not. I still think Crusader Kings 2 is probably the cream of the crop of these games. Oh, definitely. Um, no question. I, I own all the DLC for it now. <laughs> oh, so how many pieces of DLC is that? That's like got to be in the Jesus. 20s. It, yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Oh, so in fairness, I don't own some of the packs and stuff, but all ah, the okay. all the slack, all, <clears throat> all the ones that we used to call expansions. Yeah, I own. And, and yeah. Steam sales are dangerous for things like that. Yeah. Um, and of course, so the way Crusader Kings 2 handles things is it's very character-based, but you can kind of make anything happen within reason. So the important thing about the Paradox games is the within reason part. So in Europa Universalis, if you're Spain, it kind of makes sense to conquer the New World, but you don't have to do that. You could be much more intra-Europe focused, more like yes, Louis XIV yes, France yeah. was if you want. Yeah. Whereas the French could become more focused on the New World, which is really interesting. But the Irish can't just conquer Europe, at least not easily. But it could be done. And <laughs> it could be. And Crusader Kings 2 is particularly fun because you do it through marriage. And you do all kinds of super cool things where something's yeah. like, whoa, I control the Mediterranean now. That was awesome because I had like three good marriages in a row. Um, and and so it's very, although there are constraints. Getting, there, a, getting a good sense of how you play Crusader <laughs> yeah. Kings 2, by the way. Right, exactly. Uh, so although there are constraints there... Um, it is open and it, and it feels natural. So in Crusader Kings 2, for example, every single character in the game has an opinion about every other character, every other character they've 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 met. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might only be based literally on I don't know you and we're different religions and it's it's fourteen twenty two. Therefore, I hate you. You know, like yeah. which, which is which is not a terribly implausible way to do it. But as you just said, um, in Hearts of Iron, they have these very what are kind of not tech trees because it's not tech, but yeah. history trees. Um, what are they called again? You just described them and I've forgotten already. Um, oh, it's a national focus. Uh, thank you, the national focus. So if you want, so for example, if I want, um, if if I take control of Japan in Waking the Tiger in particular, where and, and one of the things they do, like so Waking the Tiger is focused in East Asia, so they give you more of those uh, pathways. Yes. They create more of them for Japan. So do I want to become very focused on conquering China, which is what happened? Or do you want to become more focused on um, going further down towards the Pacific and the Marianas and the Philippines? And then kind of out there, do I want to become 
a friend to the Russians or don't want to conquer Russia. But you kind of make these decisions in, in such a way that it's really hard. Like you're not going to change your mind halfway through your game. It's not going to happen. You can't do that. Yeah, you, can't, you just can't. It just isn't set up that way. It's just not. You kind of have to plan out. And so when you when you start a Hearts of Iron game, it's play for an hour or two and don't worry about it too much. Just muck around, but then pause everything and look at your options. And go, right. What I'm actually going to try and do here, because it really is going to I'm going to lock myself into either doing one thing or doing nothing. Um, whereas the other games don't really do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and that's just for us as historians, that's really interesting, right? Because <laughs> it's locking you into we talk to the civilization a lot on yeah. video content here and podcasts and stuff. Hearts of Iron is doing that. It's going, well, you know, make your call and then do it. You're, you you don't get to be friends with the Americans later if you don't do these five steps first. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And it tells you a lot, I think, about how that game handles the history role playing. Yeah. But it is interesting because I think one of the things that video games in general do really well especially for grand strategy games, is that you get a good sense of causality and contingency in historical events. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Hearts of Iron in particular, and this is one of the things that bothers me about it, is that once you have chosen kind of a certain line of national focus, you're stuck on it. You're on rails, right? Mm-hmm. And so yep. the contingency part of it is essentially taken out of it. And um it, it is you know you were on this path you have chosen this path and they do open up you know a couple of alternative history storylines uh waking the tiger i think has got one where you can mm-hmm. depose hitler uh but at the same time there's no kind of other contingency that comes along with it i mean you can almost see how the game is going to go based on the uh, the national focus tree right you know you can right. look going into your future and for me that it really kind of ruins the the fun and the feel of other paradox titles that I enjoy. Right, and 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 it's an interesting thing because a lot of this comes down to factions. So Crusader Kings Two is very famous as a game of intrigue and everything else. So yeah. if you if you are part of the Holy Roman Empire in Crusader Kings Two, or maybe you're French or something, you if you make enough friends, again, <clears throat> this is this is why it's it's such an elegant game actually because if you can manage all these interpersonal relationships and all these you know computer generated characters you might get just enough momentum to actually stage uh, stage an assassination attempt on the whole, on the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire um and then and then see what happens after that and see who's in line and i was playing stellaris recently which is an excellent excellent paradox game which is the closest they've ever come to a 4x game it kind of basically is a 4x game but it still has those faction ideas as well and in hearts of iron 2 that hearts of iron 4 that just isn't there um, and for example, in Waking the Tiger, the China game is kind of difficult and kind of finicky and annoying, which mm. actually makes it quite historically accurate. <laughs> that was kind of we can talk about that in a few minutes. That was kind of Chiang Kai-shek's challenge, I think, that he miserably failed. Um, where you basically generate, you know, there's a couple of different currencies you have, and you can spend some of that currency to pacify various factions. And it doesn't get any deeper than that. And I and I kind of get why it doesn't, because it, it's really a war game in a way the other games aren't. Um but it, it, it again, it closes it off into a completely different approach to history in a game to the other the other games in Paradox is Stable, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a, a brief moment about some of the controversial elements within Man the Guns, uh, and in mm-hmm. particular has to do with the DLC's focus on a new alternative history path for the United States. Uh, and in particular, as America in the DLC Man the Guns, you can set the country up uh, through the national focus system uh, to basically have another civil war that could result in the reestablishment of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And essentially, this course of action begins by having uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, lose either the 1936 or the 1940 presidential election, you know, depending on when you start the game. Right. Uh, and then diverting America's national focus to a particular set, a particular branch of the national focus tree. And these things uh, on this side of the branch include things like uh, reestablishing the gold standard, uh, extending the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, deregulating uh, the banking sector, uh, you know, from the New mm -hmm. Deal. Uh, and then finally, uh, the kind of one of the culminating moments is you can improve diplomatic relations with Germany uh, through the personage of Charles Lindbergh. Right. Uh, was, you know, the famous American aviator mm -hmm. was also perhaps the most famous uh, Hitler apologist or Nazi apologist in America uh, during the 1930s, early 1940s. And the thing is, is that, you know, Paradox has uh, in many ways made their games with alternate history storylines in mind, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's kind mm -hmm. of the main strength of what you can do in Europa Universalis or in Crusader Kings. You can live out uh, alternate histories. And they've definitely done it too with Hearts of Iron. You know, the previous Hearts of Iron games have done this. Uh, you know, Wake the Tiger has got mm -hmm. to pose Hitler or mm -hmm. restoring democracy uh, mm -hmm. in Japan. And the thing is, is that for the most part, I don't have a problem with those alternative storylines, but I do have a bit of a problem uh, with this alternative storyline, particularly given the fact that it comes in the midst of, you know, kind of ongoing fascination with white supremacy and the Confederacy uh, in general in America. And then also the fact that, you know, as is very well known and very well publicized by a lot of different sites, including Kutaku on Rock, Paper, Shotgun, you know, Paradox games are really attractive to right-wing player forums, uh, mm -hmm. you know, particularly on 4chan, who like to use their games as the basis for exploring, you know, ethno-nationalist mythical histories, essentially. Right, um, right. And so it's a weird decision on their part to take this alternative history, which is, I think, one that is very popular to that subset, of players and basically I feel like it gives a stamp of approval to it you know yeah. by giving the players the tools to explore this alternative history they're essentially saying um, you know that this type of play this type of exploration of the past is okay um, mm -hmm. now I would say to Paradox's defense because the way the national focus system works you have to self-select as the player to follow this course of history, right? So there's not a way that you can start as the Confederacy at the beginning of Hearts of Iron Four. You've got to start as America with uh, FDR as president, and then you have got to go through and self-select the national focus that leads you towards reestablishing the Confederacy. So in other words, it is the problems I have with this is somewhat mitigated by the fact that you, you the player has to make the decision, right? Paradox doesn't offer it up to them uh, right. already, but still, that I don't know if that does enough to kind of to mitigate all the problems that I have with this. I mean, to begin with, the the a very idea of having the Confederacy come back into an existence in the late 1930s is. It, it, it's so ridiculous it almost borders on science fiction, right? You know, if you're right. in the game in 1936 or 39, depending on when you start, the Confederacy has been destroyed for over 70 years, 
right? So, so much time has passed that many of the historical realities from the mid-19th century can't be counted upon to re-emerge in the 1930s, right? Mm -hmm. And also you're kind of papering over the huge differences within the South over their opinion uh, you know, ranging from things on the New Deal uh, or even war against Germany, right? You know, many states mm -hmm. within the South were actually uh, in favor of fight, fighting the Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, with the Confederacy storyline in the game, you know, historians, you know, they often look at counterfactual scenarios. You know, they do it a lot to kind of uh, question uh, established historiography on mm -hmm. certain topics, but the ways in which they traditionally look at counterfactual scenarios tends to be really limited, right? It's usually like they're looking at one particular event, they're working at one particular um, decision that was made, and then seeing, well, maybe what would have happened if that hadn't been made. What right. this counterfactual scenario is doing uh, is it's essentially taking uh, an amazingly ahistorical idea, right? Uh, the Confederacy coming back to life after 70 years and bringing it into the 1930s, 1940s. Um, right. And that, for me, that goes a little bit too far. You can't simply uh, hand wave this and say, yeah. well, this is similar to saying uh, a counterfactual scenario in which Hitler is assassinated. Or that this is similar to uh, a scenario in which the British fascists are really strong and take over Britain. Uh, you know, right. those are somewhat realistic, somewhat authentic, to use your word, uh, somewhat authentic counterfactuals that you could explore. But putting the Confederacy in this context, in the scenario, it seems to me to be wantingly provocative and objectionable. Yeah, I mean, I... I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I, I, I feel please, very, honestly, I feel very, I feel very similar uh, to you. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting off my soapbox right now. <laughs> no, but I think that um, I think what interests me is the horrors of the factual in some sense. Right. And, and yes, uh, this is obviously yes. a game. I mean, so you can control the Nazis like yes. <laughs> and, the, yes, yes. And, 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 and the game. It's funny because the way the game works, you can. You can change government types, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but you can go in, you can take over Germany, and you can make Germany a broadly democratic, um, power-hungry state by 1938 or so, with a bit of effort, um, uh, if you want. The Japanese, of course, committed terrible war crimes. Uh, Chairman Mao, who in Waking the Tiger is holed up in in Yan'an in the Northwest, uh, is pers was personally responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people in peacetime, right? Um, so I suppose one could argue then um, that this is allowing you a chance like this is a path. There were people in the United States and not just not just a small number of kooks, thankful a minority of people, but a sizable minority who were OK with things like this, like the Chinese Exclusion Act and everything else. Sure. So why not? Why not explore that? But but the one thing I say as well before. I, so so that I kind of put that up as, as a potential mitigating factor. But. I will say what's interesting is I've played a U.S. playthrough before um, uh, Man the Guns came out where I, I, I turned I basically turned the U.S. communist mm -hmm. um, which took a lot of effort and was an absolute ball um, and communism, you know, Stalin and Mao and all that stuff. Yeah, it felt transgressive, um, but it didn't feel gross. 
Uh, maybe because I'm a European and I'm socialist at heart. I don't know, right? But I <laughs> didn't feel gross. You disgust but, me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the Confederacy does feel gross. So I guess I'm asking you kind of a deliberately, a deliberately awkward question, difficult question or silly question, really. What if instead of reviving the Confederacy, which, as you say, feels like a leap in a way that other counterfactuals in the game don't actually necessarily feel like that much of a leap? Yes. Like, yeah. it's not a huge leap that, well, it's it's a big leap the Japanese and the Americans would have decided to be allies, but it's not it's not an insane idea. Um, but what what if instead of the Confederates coming back, um, there was a chance to be a kind of an ethno-nationalist, as it were, and bring the U.S. down that path? I mean, the Irish government, for example, our Senate and stuff is laid out has been was influenced by Mussolini. You know, yeah. like the corporate structure of government and everything else. And in the 1920s, before fascism became identified with you know, the attempts to wipe out entire pe- peoples, um, uh, whether it be Jewish people, disabled people, homosexual people, everything else. Uh, you know, people were talking about this, like, there's some good ideas here, you know. Yeah. So so would that be, would an ethno-nationalist, fascist or quasi-fascist US, would that be just as bad? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, how much is tied into, I think you're making a really interesting point, because it's not just, oh, the Confederacy is bad, although it was, uh, I, I was really interested in how you couch that. Yeah, but it actually makes no sense historically. Yeah. So would something that would kind of be odious in concept if it had happened be less frustrating to play or less give you less of these issues if it was if it was not as out there as the Confederacy idea feels? Absolutely. I think you're totally yeah. right. I mean, for instance, let's take the figure of Charles Lindbergh, right? What if we created an ethno-nationalist state based around Charles Lindbergh? Right. Um, now, of course, that would be a disaster. He was a terrible uh, speechmaker and politician, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, it would feel more authentic to that time period than taking the Confederacy, the iconography mm-hmm. of the Confederacy, right. and bringing it almost wholesale including the color palettes for the Confederacy is in the game, right? Bringing that wholesale 70 years into the future, right? That feels like, um, it feels like sci-fi, right? And it it feels like sci-fi in a really distressing and disturbing way in the sense that, you know, it is playing into this kind of ethno-nationalist history that you get from uh, right-wing provocateurs online, that the game, in a sense, has taken the elements of that provocation, uh, particularly the color palette, the flags, uh, yeah. the kind of phraseology of the Confederacy, and brought that forward into a counterfactual scenario, which is in a game, but it's still kind of giving license to those ethno-nationalist ideologies in the present day, right? Saying we should bring back the Confederacy, that we should have uh, the Confederate battle flag uh, waving at uh, public events or in public venues or Mm -hmm. at, um, uh, you know, state legislatures, et cetera, or even at, um, uh, in Washington, Mm D.C. So I think that's my problem is it's the Confederacy, whatever you want to call it, the kind of of Confederacy – uh, visual aspects, the kind of the uh, phraseology of the Confederacy that's brought forward, instead of creating uh, a completely counterfactual but a little bit more believable ethno-nationalist state within mm-hmm. the 1930s, 1940s context. Yeah, I think that um, I have a question for you. I think I'd probably know the answer to this, but I haven't I haven't uh, played any of the Confederate stuff or 
seen it really. I'm assuming the way the national focus works, I guess it's not possible to be like a reformed confederacy. Do you no. know what I mean? Like I'm assuming the decisions. <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 the so racism, et cetera, et cetera, like it's baked into what the confederate yes. state is going to be. Okay. Yes. And, because, and yeah. the, the thing is, is that uh, when you start going down the confederacy path, uh, you do several things at once that kind of really set the stage for it, mm -hmm. right? So instead of just starting with reestablishing the Confederacy, having a civil war, you do things like extend the Chinese Exclusion Act. You do things like uh, establish uh, HUAC, uh, the, mm -hmm. the House on American Activities Committee. Uh, mm -hmm. So it makes it very clear from the outset as to where you are going mm -hmm. with this, right? And those are very early national focuses, right? So for people who haven't played before, you know, you select national focuses and they're kind of like um, uh, research selections. So you select yeah. one, it takes like, you know, I don't know, six, seven months, and then you select another. So you're going down a branch of a particular uh, set of national focuses that ends in the Confederacy. It doesn't start with the Confederacy. It ends with the Confederacy. It ends with oh. uh, the establishment of this white ethno-nationalist state. And so the parts that go into that process make it very clear that you are self-selecting uh, a system that is going to attack minorities. It's going to right. uh, persecute communists uh, and presumably also going to restrict the rights of uh, women. Now, national focus is also give you benefits that stack. Yes. Um, so, and so, for example, in addition to these national focuses of make your country such and such a government, you could become, you know, you could you could follow um, uh, an air an air combat focused. Uh, yes. You know, you could become, you know, you could become a country that is entirely focused on having the best air force in the world. Yes. Um, are there, if you put all those things aside for a moment, um, if you're just, you know. This is kind of a loaded statement. If you're just playing the game, like as a game, right? Um, does the Confederacy give you any bonuses? Like, is that do you know what I mean? Like, it does it does it does it is there any kind of gameplay benefit to being a Confederate power, or is it purely kind of a fluff type history role playing flavor? You can you know because it sounds to me the way you're describing it that it's kind of an alternate an alternate gameplay option, which mm -hmm. actually I think strengthens your argument. You know, like you're not going to have a quote unquote regular mainstream playthrough if you do this. Right. Um, you know, it's not going to make you like the Confederates aren't going to have stronger land armies or something, but maybe they are. I don't know. Like, is there any kind of gameplay thing that theoretically would make the Confederate state make sense? Or is it purely you go off and you do this and fulfill a fantasy or whatever and you're done? I can't say for sure that there aren't gameplay elements that play into this. But from right. the two playthroughs that I've had messing with this stuff, it seems to be primarily a Confederate veneer on an otherwise traditional American playthrough through Hearts of Iron 4. Yeah. Um, but of course, when you are going down this path, you do have the outbreak of a civil war in America. So in many ways, you almost shoot yourself in the foot right. as America because you end up having to deal not just with uh, competing nations, uh, you know, traditional competing nations during this time period, particularly Japan, uh, Britain, Germany, uh, Russia to a certain extent, but you also have to fight a civil war uh, in America, which can get very complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, historically speaking, I think, of course, what's so interesting, um, as many list as most listening will already know, right, that, you know, the Japanese constitution after World War II, which admittedly had a lot of American hands involved in writing it, effectively outlaws war. Um, and, you know, the Poston declarations and everything else, you know, the Western argument for Japan was, oh, well, Japan was hijacked effectively by a small number of militarist maniacs, you know, um, and, and and there was definitely 
there was a lot of like discursive space left open for the Japanese public to kind of aggressively state that they weren't part of that and they were rejecting it. Mm-hmm. And and the Japanese public did that because they had lost a war and it was it was clearly the most sensible thing to do. And it should also be pointed out that there were there were many Japanese who'd been censored and been persecuted. So, you know, that that's kind of what happened in Japan. So there are conservative figures in Japan today who are not necessarily pro the militarists. Like the, the most, you know, it's a very niche thing in Japan today to kind of say, you know, oh, we were perfectly, we were the good guys in World War II. There's a lot of kind of, why are we always the bad guys, which is a bit of a dodge, right? But it's not super common. In Germany, famously, um, you know, you can be arrested, you can be put in prison for wearing Nazi um, paraphernalia. Right. And of course, the US is so different um, because of the narrative, you're going to have to correct me, Bob, because I'll get this wrong, the 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 loss of the South narrative, am I getting that right? Um my, one of my favorite songs as a teenager was The Night They Drove All Dixie Down by the band. Um, I didn't really understand any of the historical context of that song. Um, mourning the passing of the South of the capital the lost, S. Yes, the lost cause narrative. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I knew I was going to butcher that. So that <clears throat> becomes a super interesting thing that does make... It does make this a different case, doesn't it? Because there's not... I mean, yes, there are people in Germany and Japan who who yearn for that, but they're not... The Lost Cause narrative is a different thing. Yeah. You know, like there's such a larger base of people participating in it, um, maybe not super overtly all the time, but it's it's a different space in the American discussion, isn't it? Yes. And yeah. I guess that's that's what's driving a lot of your repulsion to to this option in the game. Absolutely. And I think that I mean there there could be a sense, especially if you're looking at it from Paradox's context, you know, most of their developers are in Sweden. Um, you know, if you're looking right. at it from yes. from their context, they might not be as aware of this kind of longstanding lost cause narrative. They might not be as aware of how complicated an idea it is to uh, bring back the Confederacy, even in, in the context of Hearts of Iron, only 70 years after uh, the Civil War. But I think, you know, in the context of this game – coming out when it is, you know, coming out in this era where there is renewed interest in the Confederacy, white supremacy, um, right-wing, extreme right-wing politics, it seems incredibly dangerous to me to essentially put the seal of approval from Paradox on the use of this uh, symbolic, you know, these symbols, the use of these, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, phrases, the use of this kind of iconography. Essentially, and it's even more distressing, at least from my perspective, uh, that it's occurring within the context of a grand strategy game. So, you know, this is what Paradox does. But, you know, there have been other games, you know, we could think of in particular uh, Wolfenstein, the new Wolfenstein series that adopts Mm -hmm. the iconography, adopts the phraseology of these uh, historically repulsive uh, regimes. But it seems more distressing to me to do that in a grand strategy game because you never get a good sense in a grand strategy game of the consequences of those regimes on the ground. Mm-hmm. So in a grand strategy game, you know, whether you're playing as um, uh, China or, you know, you'd mentioned Mao, you'd mentioned uh, mm-hmm. the Japanese, uh, the atrocities committed by the Japanese, I uh, mentioned uh, Germany, of course. Um, you get a really good sense in Hearts of Iron of the nature of industry and military engagements at a mm-hmm. grand strategy level 
in this game, but you never really get a good sense of what's going on in the home front. You know, what is the institution, what is the success of these regimes mean for people on the ground, right? Mean for uh, minorities in these communities or mean for women or mean for, uh, you know, uh, African-American communities in America if you're running the Confederacy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really distressing to me because I think, you know, players – they can get a lot of authentic historical knowledge from this, the kind of concerns of industry, the concerns of grand strategy. But at the same time, when you're messing around with these particularly uh, contentious, particularly controversial uh, historical regimes, if you're not getting some sort of inkling of the repercussions that go along with the success of those regimes in these wars, then I really feel like you're doing a disservice to not just the players, but just kind of wider, the wider community in the world, right? Mm -hmm. You are essentially giving players the ability to act out fantasies without necessarily thinking about what does this mean for people on the ground and not just, you know, kind of on the, on the ground in the game, right? Nobody really considers NPCs or the murdering of NPCs to be a controversial aspect of modern video gaming. But, you know, you are playing around with history and you I think you need to give the players some sort of test, you know, some sort of sense of the historical repercussions of these events that they're acting out that has to go beyond simply giving them, you know, a little bit of flavor text whenever they select a national. Right. Focus, right? It's got to go beyond that. I feel like I, the more I think about it, the more I'm I'm a little bit put off, not just by Hearts of Iron and this DLC, but also by grand strategy games in general i don't know <laughs> uh, what tell me tell me i'm wrong john tell me i'm wrong well i i you I'm know going too far a little bit but at the same time i think there's a challenge and this is one of the you know this was the thing with the gamergate thing a couple of years ago and i know that some will listen and go oh don't act like it's over like i, I know there's still people out there saying terrible things but i had a discussion with a student a couple of years ago who was very aggrieved by my blanket statement that gamergate was bad and a waste of time and one of the things i had to I tried to explain to him, and I did. I wish I'd done a better job of it. Was you're in a tricky position here, which is I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that games coverage has gone in a kind of a certain direction, which doesn't always represent, you know, I think the larger um, the larger game playing base, right? So, for example, um, you shouldn't have to be a Democrat voter to like read certain video game websites or whatever, right? Sure. The obvious problem with Gamergate was that they were the whole balance thing was nonsense and and um they just wanted you know they wanted to reject the idea that um that different kinds of people exist and things like this and I was trying to tell this young person um it's a really crappy thing but sometimes you think a certain way and you meet people that think the same way you do, and you meet a larger group, but you sometimes you have to be aware of the possibility that there's fractures within your group and that parts of your group are saying things that are really not okay, like not at all okay. Yeah. And that it's not fair that that is contaminating something that you're trying to say, but nobody ever said life had to be fair. Yeah. Do, do, do you see what I mean? So yeah. and, and the reason I'm bringing all this up is that grand strategy games feel that way to me a bit. Because sometimes you have students in the classroom and all they want to talk about is the battles. And that's okay. Um, and military history is a thing. But good military history talks about the human experience and the context around the conflict. 
even if you are super interested in specific maneuvers and such and such on the theater, on some level, you're going to be talking, bringing in other stuff. And that we're not asking you to do that because of a particular political agenda, but just because it's better history. And I think the grand strategy, some people, I think, misguidedly think of, oh, well, this is a bias free telling, right? Yes. But as you going back to your point, but of course, it's not bias free at all. Um, it's excluding certain it's excluding certain things. Yeah. Um, I think what I would at the same time, I think you're making a case for why somebody would decide that the strategy was that the genre wasn't for them. I don't think you've dealt a killing blow of the, the genre has no oh, value. I know, I know that's not yeah. what you're saying. I know that's yeah, not what you're but, saying. But I was thinking as you were talking, one of the things that really interests me and we might talk about this in a few minutes, and I'll talk about the division too, actually, is how much the United States is of the world and not just of itself, even despite the fact there's so many people in this country who are very insular and everything else. And by the way, every every country in the world, especially large countries, has lots of insular-minded people. But the U.S. is of the world, especially in the pop culture world, because the U.S. is so central to it post-1945. Because in Japan, a game with a nuclear explosion, it might have the nuclear explosion edited out. Yeah. And in Germany and in Australia, they might edit games or choose not to sell them. But that would never happen in the U.S. Now, a big part of that is free speech and all the other issues. There's lots of concerns here in the U.S. But I, I just can't imagine it even on a macro level because the U.S. is kind of a substitute for whatever the mainstream is globally in, in this specific video game cultural space. I just can't imagine the U.S. having a different version of a video game to the rest of the world, at least not in this kind of grounds. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe I'm going too far now the other direction. Um, but it just becomes this, uh, I get it's just such a huge thorny question because, of course, the big problem with grand strategy is there are people out there who, if allowed to sideline the horrors of, you know, even the Holocaust, they'll do it. And the grand strategy genre is more amenable to that than something like, like you say, Wolfenstein, where mm-hmm. yeah. you, it, it, it would... Yeah, you know, and you've covered this. You covered this in your in the first Wolfenstein reboot on the YouTube channel. Um, they decided to go with the Holocaust, and the guests had very mixed feelings about that. Um, but, but I at I, least, but at least it was there. You know, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you had to do it. Whereas, I, I for reasons that I hope are obvious, you couldn't possibly put it in Hearts of Iron where you're placing camps and things like. Oh my yes. god! Actually, oh, yeah. I actually got a bit of a shiver even thinking that. You know. I agree, so that's, and that's an you interesting. Have to, and as the game developer, you have to make a game that the players want to play, and that yes. is fun for them. So having too much historical realism in that sense would be a big turnoff, you know, for political reasons, but then also for gameplay reasons. I think, yeah. um, because it would put you too much into thinking about uh, home front concerns rather than you know swashbuckling foreign invasions, right? Um, uh, but at the same time, it, it this DLC has made me reconsider my interest in historically accurate and big square scare quotes around that historically mm-hmm. accurate grand strategy games because I don't think these games actually offer that even though it is big one of their biggest calling cards right it is like mm-hmm. when you think of historically accurate games to the extent that they even exist. You right. tend to think of these grand strategy games where you're looking at the minutia of, you know, how many bullets does a uh, MP42 shoot out? You know, how many uh, bombs uh, can a B-52 bomber hold? You know, you're really getting into 
the historical details. So much of what people actually uh, get out of this series, in particular, or other grand strategy games, is that kind of historical nuance, right? That is mm-hmm. attempting some sort of realism, but at the same time, it completely sidelines this other important historical uh, events or events that could be going on that would make you feel a little bit gross mm-hmm. for being into the other parts of the historically accurate uh, aspects of the game. I will say, I think a flaw that Grand Strategy has, and it's not necessarily Grand Strategy's fault per se. So if you go onto Paradox forums or Paradox fan forums, you will see some of the most heartwarmingly wonderful ludicrously nerdy historical conversations you've ever seen you know and like people are just bathing in it it's like oh my god these these people are great but you'll also get the guy you'll also get people who were on the forum to explain to everybody else why such a thing well this is the way it happened or such and such a thing you can feel this way if you want but that was the 1700s and racism was just a thing which i guess is partly kind of true but is an overly limited reading but what's interesting with grand strategy is these guys remind me i've played a bit of dungeons and dragons because i'm super cool that way um and i'm a very nerdy person lots of nerdy things and there are people when you play dungeons and dragons who seem to have gotten up that morning precisely with the intent of explaining to you exactly why you're interpreting the rule wrong and this is the way it has to be right yeah um uh, matt powers a mutual friend of ours i think had a he and his brother called these people grognards yes no, this only goes that way. You can't do it this way. And those guys, those people, I should say, show up in the Grand Strategy forums as well to kind of, you know, the kind of people whose blood are boiling is boiling listening to us talk about this Confederate thing this way. You know? <laughs> but I do think it's important to remind ourselves that I think um, I'm naive. I believe humans are good. And I, <laughs> I, think, I think that most Grand Strategy fans just aren't, aren't into it that way. So it becomes a very interesting question of, how do we balance how do we balance the risk and if you're paradox as well like the real risk like what what if what if images from your game become the most popular thing on the stormfront forums or whatever you don't want that for i mean for purely well, capitalist reasons you don't forget think, morality you don't want that think about their inclusion of the phrase days vault in crusader right. kings 2 yeah you know? i mean yeah. that is that is nearly a one to one relationship between days vault in their games and mm-hmm. Its appearance in comment threads, forums, uh, 4chan, etc. Yeah. So I'm saying, for me, yeah, no, yeah. you know, you know, with this Confederacy DLC, as I've said several times, you know, I see this as a particularly dangerous and particularly objectionable uh, inclusion because of the implications, right? It, it says to me they are aware of that context. They're aware of the influence of. Uh, extreme right-wing modders in their community, the popularity of Days Vault uh, mods for Crusader Kings 2 and for Hearts of Iron 4, and yet they went forward with this Confederacy DLC anyways. Yeah. I, and yeah. I should say, in case you, in case I didn't mention at the beginning, uh, we did see receive uh, free review copies of these uh, two DLCs from Paradox uh, directly. But it's an interesting, and speaking of which, just transition over to Waking the Tiger just for a minute. Sure, go ahead. Um, no, because I think it's a very interesting contrast, you see. And this goes back to my point about the American example genuinely feeling different in a very different way. Um, <laughs> Waking the Tiger does a very good job of simulating, in my opinion, of simulating the reality of Chinese politics in the first half of the 20th century, which is it was an absolute disaster. 
and a mess. And if you want to play as Chiang Kai-shek and unite China and, you know, be active in World War II, you can do it, but it is not easy. Um, and in fact, my experience of Waking the Tiger, I've actually had more fun with Japan um, because it's a little bit easier to push Japan in a few different directions. Um, but in uh, in the Chinese games, it's just a quagmire and it's just mm-hmm. a mess. And it's actually, it's instructive in a way that I actually think is really valuable because mm-hmm. I will tell my students, you know, oh God, warlords, that was a mess. And the truth of it is the Chiang Kai-shek probably had no cards to play. The card he should have played was he should have resisted the Japanese. He made a huge mistake not doing that. Um, but the truth is, I don't think he had any good options. And the game does an exceptionally good job of illustrating that because it's it's a nightmare. <laughs> like if you're trying to unite China, it's a nightmare. And the penalties to your military tech and everything are a nightmare. Um, but that that closeness that is there between the player and the history that is such, in my opinion, is a huge, especially as a Chinese historian, it's a huge boost for Waking the Tiger. I, I love mm-hmm. that about that DLC. It's like this is this actually feels this this is what video games do well. You know, yeah. they, they they really put the player in a position of no, this is like you can read about this mechanical process, this historical process, these set of conditions interacted with each other in a very unpredictable way that created this outcome. But now you're actually seeing it happen and you're trying to change it, and you can, but it's not easy and all these kinds of things. So and I think that very same experience that is such an elevating thing in Waking the Tiger has created challenges then for you in man the guns the confederacy and i just think that's really interesting that that's so from the paradox point of view it's like but we're doing the same thing across all the yes i know know. and and is it reasonable for us to ask them to do different things i don't know but like that's the that that's intriguing to me like they're actually kind of being consistent in what they're doing yes and so the question you're raising is yeah but is that is that necessarily the way to go yeah (laughs) should you be consistent in what you're doing you know Yeah. And I think your interjection uh, when you were playing devil's advocate to say, you know, what if it was just a a generic ethno-nationalist state, not the Confederacy, right? (laughs) And I would say, yeah, I think 1930s fascist government, you know. Yeah, Yeah. I think that would work. I think it would. But to bring in the Confederacy, to bring in that iconography, that symbology, I just think that is that is not the move I would have made. (laughs) And, you know, for the reasons I laid out. So, yeah, I, just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm again, I'm not only questioning this DLC in particular, but it has made me question this type of game going forward, um, because I think that my kind of defenses were brought up because it's America. I'm an American. I think a yeah. lot about these type of issues. Um, but I'm sure there are other issues similar to this that Paradox has gone over before that I'm just not aware of. Um, well, I, I so it, just, one, it, yeah. it makes me want to makes me want to dig into this and investigate it a bit more. Well, I have one last question for you. Sure. Before we move on, um, we should move on. Yes. Yeah, but I have one last question because you know. So I, I and I think you made a very good point, which is we're talking largely about Northern European developers, and that's not that's not a cop out. That's a thing. Like. Yeah. Um, you know, I was growing up in, in County Cork and uh, in Ireland in the 1980s and 1990s and Cork's colours are red, red and white. That's the team's colours for the county. And people would bring Confederate flags to games, you know. I mean, Axel Rose was wearing one in his jacket at the time, you know, like, like and, and, and there's this ongoing thing with iconography itself. But you have a background in military history, Bob. You, you were very close to specifically going into a military history focus for your PhD. Yes. Back when you were starting out. Yes. So... Are there any analogs here between the grand strategy um, 
game genre and other genres versus some of the issues around military history and in fact even history of diplomacy, the, the quote-unquote grand strategy era in actual history writing. Do you see what I mean? Are there analogues here? Because that's definitely been a thing in history, right? And we combat that with undergraduates all the time, which is, well, no, there's a lot more going on here um, than Bismarck was awesome, you know? Yes. <laughs> so uh, do you see analogues there or is it just a kind of a separate thing? You know, it's it's funny you should bring that up because I was uh, having a discussion with uh, Sarah Handley Cousins, uh, who uh, is on uh, the Dig podcast, uh, and then also uh, is a blogger on Nursing Clio. And she came in for a guest speaker talk at Louisiana Tech this year to talk about podcasting. And we had a discussion over uh, dinner in which she was talking about her field, which is uh, the history of the Civil War. And she uh, is a bit of a uh, kind of uh, somebody who's interested in history of science. She does disability history, but then also military history. And she presents at a lot of military history conferences. And you would think, you know, here we are in 2019, you would think that learned historians in the Western world would be appreciative of new perspectives on Civil War history. But in mm -hmm. fact, she told me that it's still very often the case to get a lot of blowback to the type of work on gender and race that she does mm -hmm. about the Civil War from established scholars who want to talk about the battles, want to talk about the grand strategy, want to talk about logistics. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. And, you know, for me, when I was coming up as an undergrad, um, as a uh, master's student, I would get sit-downs from advisors at UT who would say, well, you know, um, you do great work. You know, obviously the military history you would do would take into account these cultural considerations. But I just want you to know that people are going to think you're a warmonger, right? People huh. are going to have this opinion of you because of the field at large, not because of you in particular. Right. And, and I still think that exists, right? Yeah. And – you know, on one hand, it's like I look at the field and I say, oh, there might have been some opportunities for me to make a, a useful uh, addition to the historiography to change the way these things are talked about. But I still feel, you know, listening to Sarah talk about it, who's right in the middle of this, it's still that problem right there. That issue is still there. So, you know, I would love to say that, oh, it's only these uh, Gragnargs, you know, in yeah. the – uh, grand strategy genre forums uh, that are really the problem, but that issue still exists with academic historians as well. Yeah, I think there's a broader uh, there's a broader problem as well because I think the issue, you know, the beauty of being an historian is I know that things can change, and so we're not doomed to be like this forever. But we have we're in a very uh, a very aggressive political moment right now across the spectrum. Yes. Where if you're being seen as in a different political camp to me, I'm going to be initially there's a, this bar you immediately have to clear. Yeah. And and so for some people, um, you know, race and gender does that right now at the same time, you know, 
they're not always wrong. There's a, there's an interesting issue there. I actually, I, I'm making, I, I typically have books on various topics on my bookshelf right now that are one generation previous to the current one in terms of scholarship, mm-hmm. because those books actually tell you what happened. <laughs> because the, the way the discipline is gone is nobody tells you what happened anymore. They That's just, true. That's they just true. get into the context, but there's, Inside but there's lots baseball. Of, yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of plus points to that. I mean, hugely so. Um, so I have to believe there's kind of a, a way to get past it, but it is, it is a pity. Um, and I love what paradox does. And I, I think there's a real risk there that an entire genre becomes, oh yeah, well, I'm going to, that's, that's for, that's for people who like such and such a thing. And -hmm. one of the saddest things about it is I think that it orphans people who, for example, like that, like military history or, or like grand strategy history or grand strategy games who, who just aren't like that. And I I think one of the tragic things about it is I think maybe most of the people who like that stuff aren't actually like that. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, but but they're not the people showing up at conferences and picking fights, and they're not the people getting onto forums, and they're not the people you know. creating mods either. Right, right. exactly. I think and, it's and, the most influential part of this. Yeah, and we're living through we're living through an age of tyranny of motivated people. You know, um, that if you don't have the time and energy to really make a case for political viewpoint, whether it's valuable or odious, um, you have to just you're you're being affected by those who do have the time or who are making the time to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think mod makers are an interesting component of that. The tyranny of motivated people is, is driving us all off the cliff, unfortunately. Wow. Did you come up with that phrase or did you steal that from somebody else? I, I probably stole it. I think I stole <laughs> it. I'm going to write that down. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, let's let's stop this. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk. I mean, how are you doing for time? I'm fine. Can I just say, too, we do love you, Paradox. We do. Yes, absolutely. We do. Yes. I'm going to play... Solaris tonight because my god I can't stop playing paradox games. <laughs> if 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 I didn't care, I wouldn't say anything. That's that's my, no, exactly. my viewpoint. Yeah. Exactly. Um and thank you for the review copies. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's turn to uh, some of the games you've been playing recently. Um you've been playing uh Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which yes. we've covered on the show. And then yes. you've also been playing uh Division Two. So I'm wondering which one of those Ubisoft properties you want to talk about first. Um why don't we talk about Division 2? Because there's a little bit of overlap with Darth Iron conversation, actually. Okay. Um, so I just finished doing the, uh, recording the audio for our next episode, an episode for, for History Respond on YouTube. It's going to be another one of these short 10 to 12 minute episodes. And um, my main focus for the game, so playing the Division 2. So for people who don't know, the Division 2 is an online co-op shooter. And... Uh, uh, it is, funnily enough, the sequel to the game The Division, which uh, The Division was set in New York. The Division 2 is set in Washington, D.C. And in The Division, you kind of learn, you're, you're told a lot early on, there's this pandemic that is kind of like a super flu type thing that takes out large amounts of people. It turns out that it was started by a guy who deliberately infected banknotes on Black Friday as an anti-capitalist statement. Nice. Um, Yep, and this took out large swathes of the American population. I'm not clear on the lore, where the lore stands on the rest of the world. Um, And, you know, when the first game came out, there were definitely commentators who felt weird about the game being set in New York. Of course, New York, very famously, is the was the target and was the site of the most uh, the bloodiest and most tragic terrorist attack on American soil. And um, you see, the point of the division is the division, the titular division is an organization run by the state that activates sleeper agents who then roam sit the cities of America with submachine guns shooting people. Um, 
and it's kind it's a pretty fascistic wow idea <laughs> yeah now you're shooting you're shooting looters and you're well that well they see you see i'm already getting into trouble here I think the second game is being a little bit more pronounced than the first. Maybe I'm being unfair on the first and kind of making it clear. You're kind of playing basically organized, scavenging, very, very scary people who are doing horrible, horrible things. Um, so they're doing, a, they're really trying to frame your actions in terms of justice and redemption and, and, and especially in terms of protecting those who cannot protect themselves. But you are effectively a kind of a mini Caesar running around, you know, and uh, the division itself is kind of, you know, have temporarily taken on the, the role of, of imposing order. Mm. Their order will be imposed. So that's, that's the premise. And the second game is based in DC and, um, has made a lot of hay about being very photorealistic. And so the lead designer on the game t has talked about, uh, talking to FEMA people and talking to us coast guard people about, if god forbid such a thing would happen in dc what kind of evacuation routes would be uh, would be used what would happen to the city what would happen to the layout and so you end up with this game where you're running around uh, dc and early on in the game it's the classic gameplay from the first game which is basically urban warfare around street corners and by the way division 2 is a very good game um and the uh, the ai is much improved over the first and they will flank you so i was playing last night actually um, I'm still playing it weeks later, and, and I have two small kids. This is an amazing thing. And um, <laughs> the AI was flanking me, and so I had a nice starting position, and I basically had to retreat over cover in the way you actually kind of would in a gunfight, like as in you can't just turn around and run back to the safest place. You kind of have to very gradually move back slowly, um, you know, phase your retreat, as it were, and then you push back, and all these things are great fun. But then early in the game, you break out into open spaces and there's Lincoln's Memorial and there's Washington's Monument. Um, there's the Capitol building. And it's really interesting because, of course, Washington, D.C. itself was built as a purely political or, you know, was built to get away from these political elites up in the eastern seaboard and everything else. But, you know, it's named after George Washington, you know, and the, the National Mall um, and those monuments, those were built to to really frame historic history in a very specific way. Right. Um, and Ubisoft has been very clear in saying, oh, no, the game isn't political at all. But of course, that's nonsense. I mean, whether they mean it, whether they meant it to be or not, it just is. Um, and I think there's something fascinating about taking on a bunch of what are effectively petty criminals in the shadow of the Washington Monument, which supposedly was erected to honor the, you know, the greatest example of civic civic responsibility that ever existed in a human, you know. I know that's a little bit rosy, but that that was theoretically <laughs> that's theoretically what the monument was about, right? That was that was sure. George Washington. Yeah. And I know there was lots of debates in the United States about whether or not to put the monument up and everything else, but those who liked him had this very rosy view of it. So there's a, there's this massive subversion of the American idea just just by playing the game because you're running around firing automatic weapons at people literally and Lincoln is looking at looking down on you while you do it. You know, there, there's I think the visual image of the game is really striking. Um, and and it's a really fascinating subversion of this of this public space that exists in the real world. And they've, they've done a nice job. It, it does feel like DC when you're playing the game. They've done a very, very good job of that, especially the big the big landmark places. Like you can, you know, I have fought my way up from Lincoln sitting on his throne, as it were, <laughs> sitting on his chair looking at me. I have fought my way up the reflecting pool over to Washington's monument. Mm -hmm. and, and it feels like you're in DC. And, and and so that automatically makes it a really interesting game in whether it's doing so intentionally or not, what it's saying about the American idea 
and and in particular, I kind of end the episode with this. You know, um, I don't know the Division Two is trying to do this exactly, but the Division Two has created like an end to the American story that that ostensibly the U.S. doesn't have. You know, the U.S. is theoretically this enlightenment country. It's it's all about freedom and democracy. It's all the things that make humans good, right? And I have to say that as an immigrant to this country, I'm actually I actually believe a lot of that. I think I think the U.S. is I think a lot of those things about the U.S., but the U.S. is a nation state like lots of other nation states. And arguably, if it's an empire, it's an empire. We've had empires before in history, right? And so Division Two isn't setting out to make this argument specifically, but it is effectively documenting what the empire looks like after it's collapsed. And so I really feel like the second game, it's really giving the American story, as it were, or the story of the USA, as opposed to North America, it's giving it almost like an epilogue that it's it's hard to recreate in other stories. Hmm. That That's how I feel about it. It's it's, it's just um, partly because you're theoretically trying to keep the dream alive. But for example, early in the game, you rescue the president um, who very quickly picks up a submachine gun and starts shooting people. <laughs> it's, all, it's like, whoa, this is all... Fallout Three doesn't do this, you know. This yeah. is all very, you know, it's 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 very interesting that way. Oh, so how do they portray these looters that you're battling? Are these the hardened criminals that have just suddenly shown up in the wake of this disaster, or are they normal people who have just been <laughs> driven to madness because of their situation? Yeah, they're. I think more the latter, um, and and they're definitely given a kind of a crazed characteristic um they're also they're also given a sense of um organization i think there's been there has been a real attempt you're not just shooting desperate people you are you are shooting organized um organized people who are actually putting others at risk who are killing people who are torturing people and the game has lots of video logs and stuff that you can review if you want they're just basically they're actually hard to watch this documenting horrible, horrible act of cruelty after act of cruelty. So the idea is basically that, you know, uh, very quickly in the wake of this disaster, you have two or three large factions of people who've coalesced around some kind of an ideology. Um, some one of one of them is kind of a weird like the Sons of Liberty. They're kind of a weird proto ethno fascist, I guess. U.S. kind of an idea, but they're basically it's a lot of that going around. Apparently. Yeah, a lot of go- yeah, segue. <laughs> and then end game when you kind of when you finish the game, um, and it's a very Ubisoft game, which is you basically take a map full of red dots and turn them into green dots. I stole that. That stole that from Rock Paper Shotgun, but that, that's what the game is, and it's extremely fun. Um, they all go red again, and Black Tusk comes in, who seem to be a similarly well organized, ideologically vague but clearly scary group um, with robots. That's, that's who the Black Tusk are. Nice. So, um, so it's not super clear to me, at least playing the game, what these groups are. But they 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 theoretically have some kind of ideological focus, and they are uniform. They're they're uniformly bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the best things about Division Two, one of my favorite things about it, are the settlements, which are basically hubs. The White House is your main hub, and the settlements are hubs where you get missions and and you get. Um, various tasks you can do to gain XP and stuff. And as you're completing all these missions, the settlement gradually improves and gets better and and goes from being a desperate last refuge for people who otherwise are facing certain death into a place that is clearly the beginning of new life and communities um, in, up to and including, you know, farmer's markets, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm stealing rock, paper, shotgun ideas again. Uh, but um, 
and so the settlements are 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 both successful in a gameplay point of view. They're just a lot of fun to play, and I think they help they help push that narrative more. That you are you're 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 resuscitating the, you're resuscitating an idea here in the face of um, scary, organized, vicious opposition. Mm. All right. Well, what about uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey? So Assassin's Creed Odyssey then is a, is a lot different. Um, it doesn't say anything about the United States at all. <laughs> uh, Funnily enough, you know, gameplay-wise, it's another you know, Ubisoft game, right? Like a, a, this huge map. Um, I texted you recently and I told you, what did I say again? Um, I like it more than Red Dead Redemption 2. And I feel like 17-year-old me saying he likes Queen more than The Velvet Underground. Oh, yeah, that was good. I like that. And if I'm You're just honest, full of great ideas in this podcast. Day, yeah. yeah. Uh, and if I'm honest, 17-year-old me was desperately pretentious and... Um, would never have admitted I liked Queen more than The Velvet Underground because I love The Velvet Underground, but I did like Queen more. Um, and the reason <laughs> the reason I made that analogy is I think when Red Dead Redemption 2, when it hits what it's going for, it genuinely is amazing. Like there are amazing moments in Red Dead Redemption 2 and I'm really happy that I finished that game. My God, that game drove me crazy. And I think one of the reasons that Odyssey isn't driving me crazy is that odyssey is not trying to hide anything odyssey is a video game and it's really video gamey and and that's what it's going to do you know yeah. um i want you to go and kill some of these wolves and collect something and bring them back so that i can make my husband horny again by the way assassin's creed odyssey is incredibly horny um everyone everyone is trying to have sex with my character in assassin's creed odyssey <laughs> um but it's very video gamey you know go and collect these things and come back and 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 yeah theoretically you know you can sneak in as, as assassinate guys although it's it's very hard to do actually even easy but i've done it and really felt good about the game like oh cool i did something the way that i wanted to do it yeah. even though this game is being super super open about hey do this video game thing and then i'll give you more video game things to do red dead redemption 2 is super video gamey but doesn't admit it yeah. you know so like so odyssey never told me Go and help this guy. Press X to pick up this box. Walk after him while holding the box. Put the box here. Cutscene. Good job. Like that, I can't, I can't stress just enough how how that was the opposite of fun when I was playing Red Redemption 2. Like I was like, why am I doing this? I should just be watching this on Twitch. Yeah. You know? And Cre Odyssey doesn't feel that way, even though it, it leans into the limitations of the video game. Yeah. You know? That was my main point in Odyssey. And I think I think you had didn't you have kind of a similar, I don't know if you went as far as me in that, but I, I remember you saying something vaguely similar about Odyssey at the time. Oh, God, I can't remember. I, you, would you like me to consult our text records? I mean, I No, can... I think we're okay. <laughs> and, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey was only 80 hours of your life anyway. Oh. I've been you know, saying something yeah. lines to me where Red Dead Redemption 2, or as, as, as Odyssey just was owning its identity as a video game in a way that Red Dead Redemption 2 kind of sometimes does not sometimes doesn't. Yeah, that sounds like me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think in general, um, you know, I think Red Dead Redemption Two is an important game because it's a going to become such an important touchstone for video game players, uh, for the ways in which we conceptualize the West in America. Um, right. But Assassin's Creed Odyssey was a lot more fun to play, and. Uh, it was a game that I blitzed through in a couple of weeks, you know, primarily because I was trying to do a history respawn episode on it. Right. Uh, but it's one that I think I'd be more likely to go back to uh, and play the DLC, for instance, um, it, rather than 
Red Dead Redemption 2, which I I honestly don't know if I'll ever play again. And that's amazing to me. That's an amazing statement. But I think it speaks more to, for me, it speaks more to the ways in which Red Dead Redemption 2 was disappointing rather than the ways in which Assassin's Creed Odyssey was amazing. Because I think Odyssey very much fits into line with uh, AC Origins, very much fits into line with the kind of Assassin's Creed series as it's mm-hmm. become in the last two or three uh, to five years. Whereas right. Red Dead Redemption 2 feels like a game out of time. Uh, yeah. Both in terms of its setting, but then also in terms of its mechanics and the ways in which it conceptualizes an open world. Yeah, like the, the Red Dead Redemption 2, you know, Rockstar is like, look at us. We revolutionized video, revolutionized video games again. It's like, guys, you didn't. I mean, you, you, have, you have moments in that game that are some of the best moments I've ever had in a video game. But... Um, but this isn't what games are anymore. Yeah. Um, they're like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you know, that's what yeah. they are, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that, that was it. So yeah, I, I've never been a big Ubisoft fan, but here I am Ubisofting it up. Gosh, you really um, have been. It's yeah. amazing. Next yeah, you're going to be playing, uh, oh gosh, what's their, uh, what's their other big series? Watchdogs, right? You got Watchdogs. It's oh, yeah. kind of a similar setup. <laughs> um, I, I heard a rumor actually, Watchdogs 3 is going to be set in London. I heard I, the same one. Yeah, yeah, did you? Okay, so I think that's that's a good idea. That makes sense. If you're thinking about dystopian techno future, yeah. there's really no better place than the home of you know closed circuit television, right? I mean, that's no. that that's the best best I mean, setting. You, you can expand on this very briefly for the listeners who might not know, Bob. The United Kingdom is an extremely surveilled state. Yes, um, there are cameras everywhere in major you, cities in the UK. You could even go so far as to call it a police state, John. Um, and I think that what's interesting about the UK, and as somebody who studies the history of security, warfare, and policing uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, can attest, uh, is that it—you know—on on the surface, and particularly in propaganda, they like to portray themselves as this kind of enlightened state that doesn't need to arm their police officers, uh, you know, has a dedication to civil liberties. Um, but conversely, as you know, uh, and particularly uh, as you know, as you know, from being from Ireland, um, it, it does <laughs> yes. uh, an incredible job of surveilling what they consider to be troubled populations, immigrant mm-hmm. communities, mm-hmm. Um, using not just human surveillance, but signals, intelligence, right, using uh, cameras, et cetera. Uh, and having many instances of the past of violently putting down uh, what they consider to be, uh, you know, what do you call them, uh, riots. Uh, you yeah. might even call them mutiny, uh, for instance. So right. there's there's a there's a sickening underbelly uh, to a lot of what goes on uh, in in Britain, uh, not only in the past but even today. So yeah, uh, yeah. Watch Dogs uh, Three could be really good. It if could it, be if it really is good. Uh, yes, exactly. Is if it is in London, I think that's a that's a really interesting idea. It's a really good one. Um, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this, today's episode. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's always fun. Thanks again for listening to History Respawn. Uh, if you enjoy our work, please consider looking us up on Patreon. Our Patreon site is www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.